Welcome to the Matthew Moran Podcast. Here you will find a series of in-depth conversations with the world's best nature photographers, conservationists, designers, editors, writers and publishers. You will get an insight into the lives of creative professionals and industry experts. And it is a chance to hear their stories, personal journeys and how they carve a niche to make a living in a rapidly changing, highly competitive but hugely exciting field. I've had the pleasure of working with many of my guests over the years and I've learned so much from spending time with them and having conversations about what it means to be a creative freelancer, sourcing exciting projects, sharing skills through partnerships and not losing sight of your goals and dreams. This podcast is my chance to share these conversations with you. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Today my guest is Bertie Gregory. Bertie is a filmmaker, photographer and presenter who at the age of 25 already has three online TV series for National Geographic. These series have reached millions of viewers worldwide and his third, The Big Freeze, which is just out this week, will no doubt reach millions more. If you thought that was impressive, Bertie has also worked on many of the BBC Natural History Unit's landmark series including Planet Earth 2, Wild Cities and Seven Worlds, One Planet. Despite reaching these heady heights, Bertie's feet remain firmly on the ground and he understands and advocates the need to reach viewers by filming charismatic species in spectacular settings, but at the same time driving home a strong conservation message. Bertie felt fortunate that he always knew exactly what he wanted to do for a living from a young age. And at 17, he was taken on as a young member for the 2020 Vision Initiative that brought together the best British wildlife photographers to promote the UK's wildlife and habitats. This is something you can hear about in more detail with my conversation with Pete Cairns in podcast number 11. So after graduating from Bristol University with a degree in zoology, Bertie didn't hang about securing his first commission working alongside Steve Winter for National Geographic. Bertie learned quickly on the job, moving away from stills and deeper into filmmaking and presenting. And together with Steve, they co-presented on two one-hour specials on Jaguars in the Pantanal and the City Leopards of Mumbai. Bertie had an appetite for getting things done and it wasn't long before he was presenting his own series for Nat Geo, which he talks about further in this interview. I met up with Bertie in Bristol to talk about his life as a filmmaker and to get an insight into his thought processes and method of working. So for anyone interested in breaking into this industry, make sure you keep the next hour free to hear Bertie tell you about his experiences filming wildlife all over the world and his journey to becoming a BBC and National Geographic filmmaker. Enjoy. Bertie, thanks so much for taking part in the podcast. Um, we spoke about this many months ago and I think you're probably one of my hardest guests to track down and you know meet in the same country at the same time you've been doing a lot of traveling um well for many years now so it's great and we're in your I don't know if you call it your hometown of Bristol yeah I call it well ish yeah I guess I live here yeah (laughs) Yeah. um and uh now this is great it's really exciting and you know one thing about leaving it you know an extra few months is you've got like more stories to tell but we're going to do this podcast in a tight hour and cram in as much as we can. Um, actually, first of all, why don't you tell us, you, you just got back from New York. What were you doing there? So um, uh, in New York, well, I was doing a couple of things. So um, 
I do a bit of public speaking for National Geographic. They have a, um, a National Geographic Live platform, which they don't do in the UK anymore. I think they used to, but um, they basically have theatres all around North America and other places around the world. Um, and they have their photographers, filmmakers, scientists, you know, astronauts go and give um, yeah, National Geographic Live presentations. So you do like a 80-minute show to a crowd that can be of like 3,000 people which is um it's pretty exciting because we very rarely I don't know about you I find very rarely do you get to see you, know, you work so hard on something that you know it takes you two or three years to you know document and then I mean the very best audience feedback you get is you know a couple comments on Instagram, right? It's not really, <laughs> yeah, sure. you know, you can't really gauge what someone thinks. You know, if something goes out on television, you don't, you have no idea. Yeah. Um, and so to actually get live audience feedback is really interesting because you learn what makes people tick and what people don't like. Um, and yeah, just having that direct connection to the audience is really That's cool. Great. That was a very long-winded answer. Um, <laughs> so I was doing that, and I was also finishing up uh, working on a new online series for National Geographic. Great. So we're just coming to the end of that project. Do you um, enjoy public speaking? It's part of your, you know, kind of skill set? Um, uh, yeah, no, I do enjoy it. Um, uh, still get really nervous, which I think is definitely a good thing because it means you care. Um, uh, do I enjoy? Yeah, no, I do. It's it's good fun, and you know, getting three thousand people to laugh sure. is like you get yeah. a kick out of that for sure. Um, but I think just that direct connection with people, and you can really change the way people think, mm-hmm. um, which I think is quite unique. You know, it's one thing you know getting someone to watch a film, but there's something about live storytelling that mm-hmm. I think is. Yeah, I think it's pretty powerful. There's that instant connection, isn't it? That's one one of the things I love about public speaking is this sort of accountability. If you're doing it quite regularly, you're going to have to be showing new content. And I always say when I public speak that the best thing about it, I feel it's like the best way to show your work, especially on huge screens, like really good quality. I mean, it's nowhere not, to hide. Yeah, exactly. But also, yeah, yeah, your work is shown, you know, on IMAX size screens right. and, and, and you're getting that direct connection to the person that's created that work. It, well, you put something on Instagram and it can be a giant crop and a bit out of focus. Yeah. Once you put it on a big old screen <laughs> on the wall, there's no hiding. If it's, it's out of focus, it's out of focus. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, I sort of love and hate Instagram. You reach these huge audiences, and but you've got all this incredible gear, 5K this, 6K that, and then you're showing it as a... <laughs> tiny little thumbnail yeah no totally i mean the last series was shooting on for that geo yeah we were filming in 8k and when i put a clip from that on instagram it's like 800 <laughs> pixels on the longest edge it's a bit soul destroying really. it really is but i guess you kind of have to deal with you know the the the, the main platforms and reaching the yeah, biggest audience no totally and it's... and you know you know that in certain places it is going to be seen at not that quality but that quality will be useful yeah um, excellent yeah. So let's go back a little bit. I mean, you've, you know, I've been doing my research on you. You've done loads of interviews. It's creepy. Podcasts. <laughs> bit weird. <laughs> You're my mate. And now I'm like kind of... <laughs> Stalking. Find, yeah, nice. finding out to, 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 to dredge up some dirt. No, not at all. But, um, you know, I want to talk about what, you know, what you're up to currently in the future and stuff. But it would be worth, you know, there, there, there may be some people, Bertie, I don't want to crush your ego, that might not have heard of you when they listen to this. And it would be really good just to touch a bit... Um, on your background and you know how you got into 
doing what you do. Because one of the things that I thought was funny about this is, how old are you now? 25. So you're 25. Um, and I remember you called me up as a 17-year-old. I totally fanboyed you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember getting this call from, from Bertie and, and uh, he was asking, you know, my, I'd just finished this book on Vancouver Island. I've been photographing there for five years. And then this like British kid calls me up. He's like, oh, yeah, I've spent some time on Vancouver Island and I see you have. And I've, I've, I just want to get some advice. And, uh, and then you started talking to me about, you know, pelly cases and drilling holes in them and will a bear attack it if I tie it to this tree? And I was thinking, wow, this is really advanced stuff. Like I hadn't thought about doing any of this stuff for my book. And then, of course, you know, that year and a few years later, you were doing all of that stuff and getting some really great image with pocket wizards and wide angle shots of wolves on beaches and... Um, I mean, I'm kind of answering your question, but sort of go, going back to that, I mean, even before that, you were already into nature photography. So what, what kind of got you started? What was your spark? Well, I mean, I guess going all the way back, um, my family were really into water sports. Yeah. Um, and from when I was really young, um, I was going down to the sea and on you know local lakes and stuff, learning to surf and and do all kinds of water sports. And I guess when you spend, you know, a lot of your childhood bobbing up and down on a surfboard off the Cornish coast, you're going to develop some kind of appreciation for wildlife um, or at least being outside. Sure. Um, and I, I guess, yeah, that was where it started. And then, um, yeah, my dad's interested in photography, you know, not professionally, but like as a, as a hobby. So I guess I was always around cameras when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, I was lucky that I lived, um, I lived just outside of Reading, just west of London. And um, there was the, I guess, was it a village or like a small town, I guess, that I lived in. And near, really near to where I lived with this, was this massive extent of like farmer's fields. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was where my family, we used to go like walk our dog there. And I go into these fields and suddenly I realised, you know, I'm not saying that farmer's fields are particularly brilliant places for wildlife, but... You know, they are, they have some really cool animals mm-hmm. that, you know, eke out a niche there. Um, and I started to realize there were all these cool animals that I could go and find. And I just got more and more obsessed. And I started to just sneak off. I think it's when I was, I don't know, 14, 15. I started to just sneak off for hours, for hours on end by myself. As soon as I got home from school, I just buzzed straight out yeah, into these fields great. and sneak up on whatever I could find. And it was all by trial and error. Yeah. You know, I didn't know how to sneak up on a roe deer without spooking sure. it. And for sure, I probably spooked quite a few roe deers yeah. when I was... But then over time, you know, by trial and error, you figure out how to get close to animals, you know, approaching them from downwind mm-hmm. and, you know, using cover and stuff like that. And a lot of these skills that I was developing, I don't think I even realised I was developing, which I now use like professionally on a day-to-day basis, which seems mad that, you know, even when you're halfway around the other side of the world filming for the BBC, you're using a skill that you developed as a 15-year-old, like crawling in a muddy puddle on a roe deer in Reading. So you weren't reading, you know, how to watch wildlife books when you were 14? Well, no, because, I I mean, maybe there are those books that exist, (laughs) I'm sure there are, but I think trial and error is, you know, I think often a really good way to learn. And you'll make lots of mistakes, but you'll learn from those mistakes. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I guess everyone thought I was really weird at school because I'd you know, spend all my spare time sneaking up on animals. But I found that if I took pictures of what I saw, that was suddenly a really good way to, one, explain where I'd been. Mm-hmm. And also I realised with if I got 
pictures of uh, really clear pictures of animals that people didn't otherwise get close to. You know, stuff like a roe deer. It's actually quite hard to get near. Of course, yeah. Um, or a kingfisher. Mm-hmm. Like the reaction you could get from people was was really cool. Yeah. Um, so it's like, well, if I can get other people excited about something I'm excited about, that's good fun. Yeah. Um, and and it just kind of went from from there, I guess. And I guess that's it's, it's a, a lovely thing to say that you're having that kind of experience as a as a, a kid that doesn't really know anything, but just going through trial and error. But it's sort of very much what you're doing today is filming and photographing stuff that gets you excited. Well, totally. I mean, the buzz that, and I mean this totally honestly, the buzz I get from seeing a polar bear in the Canadian Arctic, I find that just as exciting as, you know, when I was 14, sneaking up sure. on a buzzard, sure. you know? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, that's what keeps you going is, 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 is it's addictive isn't it I think there probably is like a bit of a hunter oh it's totally caveman yeah. instinct like yeah exactly yeah um you're shooting you know wildlife with a with a with a camera you know, not with a gun and there is that that thrill of getting close and you know I, re- I just recently watched um you know the final episode of your first series and that moment with the wolf is just well it just you know it sums everything up about why you do what you do and it's and it's lovely and we'll talk a little bit more about the wildlife series um but in case i forget to mention we'll put it in the notes and stuff at the end but um for the listeners who who haven't watched um bertie which is first it was your first series for nat geo right mm-hmm. and, and it was also not just your first series but it was also their first series it was their first online wildlife series yeah so. talk can you tell us a bit about that and uh the kind of you know how you ended up making this and yeah you know. well it was a ridiculously long series of events so i'm, I'm trying to do the short version so <laughs> I uh, was really obsessed with British wildlife, sneaking up on roe deer down the road from where I lived. Um, I decided that I wanted to enter my pictures into young wildlife photography competitions. And there's a few of those, yeah, Wildlife Photography of the Year, sure. British Wildlife Photography of the Year. And then this random one came up on Google that advertised for a position uh, on this project called 2020 Vision. Yeah. Um, and little did I know that that project was going to have such a significant impact uh, on how fast, I guess, my career developed. You know, I just thought it was this cool competition and got in touch with this guy called Pete Cairns, mm-hmm. who I'd never heard of before. And it turned out he was quite a big deal in the wildlife <laughs> photography in this, you know, wildlife photography world. And through that project, uh, basically got sent around, well, our job, you know, there was, there was 20 of the UK's top professional wildlife photographers. And then they went on this search to find 20 upcoming young photographers. And I was lucky enough to be selected as yeah. one of those. And um, was getting to work with, you know, getting to shoot alongside some of the best photographers in the UK, yeah. which was an amazing opportunity for me, like a little whippersnapper and not having a clue. Brilliant. I mean, the patience that, um, you know, people like Alex Mustard had, you know, one of the world's best underwater photographers. I went on a shoot with him in Cornwall. Um, you know, Terry Whitaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spent days... Uh, photographing you know, urban herons in London. Um, and so th- that project, you know, I was meeting all these amazing people and learning all these skills. You know, yeah, yeah, the guys that run that, Pete Cairns and Mark Hamlin, yeah, definitely owe a huge amount sure. to. But in this so, stage, it's only stills you're doing. Is that that right? was all stills, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, that during that project, they said, we want you to do city wildlife. I was like, well, how's that fair? Alex Mustard gets to go and play with seals <laughs> off the Devon coast. You know, yeah. Andy Rouse is doing wild boar in the Forest of Dean. Mm. And I've got to go and hang out with 
rats and pigeons. Um, and it turns out I was totally wrong. Sure. I found out, you know, whilst I'm not saying that cities are good places for wildlife. They are terrible places for most animals, but there is a handful of them that do really well in cities. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I've discovered that you can have these experiences in a city with wildlife that are just as exciting, just mm-hmm. as crazy as anywhere else. You just got to think about it a bit differently. Definitely. Um, so yeah, discovered peregrine falcons and red foxes and, you know, urban great tits and all, all kinds of animals. Um, and long story short, this is a long story. Um, <laughs> it's fine. Uh, <laughs> off the, so I took a couple pictures of urban peregrines particularly that, well, I, sorry, I guess the other thing to say is that because I was taking pictures of urban wildlife, I mean, now I think urban wildlife photography is pretty fashionable. Mm, like that's mm. a cool thing to do. Right? I think at the time it wasn't as big. I'm not definitely not saying I was a pioneer of urban wildlife photography, sure. but it wasn't, as much of a norm as it is now, I think. No, I think that Lauren Geslin was doing some Exactly. He was a pioneer for sure. And um, uh, because I guess my images were more unique than if I was just photographing peregrines in a wilder setting, Mm -hmm. peregrine falcons in a wilder setting, it meant that, you know, my pictures got noticed. Of course. And, um, you know, I had pictures, uh, like I got one of a, a... a juvenile peregrine falcon flying in front of a big Union Jack flag I on the House of Parliament. Incredible shot, yeah. I mean, it was so lucky, so jammy. Um, and, uh, you know, off that picture got noticed, it got lots of publicity yeah. as a result. Um, uh, and then. Uh, <laughs> We've got a bunch of kids outside, but this yeah, is just kind of the having na- a great time. The, yeah, yeah the, na- the nature of the podcast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this peregrine falcon picture got a lot of press. Um, and as a result of that, I got to speak at Wild Photos, mm-hmm. which um, is a really cool platform because it attracts some of the best wildlife photographers in the world. Uh, namely that year, Steve Winter is mm-hmm. one of National Geographic Magazine's top wildlife photographers. And he was looking for a new assistant. And I was like, wow, this is this is my golden ticket. You know, Willy Wonka style, this yeah. is my chance. <laughs> Unfortunately, the other 599 people at that event had the same idea. Yeah. Um, but I thought, well, I've, I was giving a presentation there, so I figured, well... You had a platform, right? I had a platform, yeah. and I had 15 minutes when no one could interrupt me. Um, you know, that was my that was so, my so, interview. So you've got your, you know, your public speaking, you know, well prepared. You've got such a short amount of time, but you've also got this sub-story going on where... I'm going to try and snag this job at the same time. Totally, yeah. It was well, it was like a, I treated it as a job interview, really. Yeah. Um, and being the, uh, I think it was seven, 17, 18 when I did that, being the cocky gobshite that I was, <laughs> um, I took the piss out of Steve's American accent because right. I thought, you know, you go big or go home, right? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he found it funny. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, after my presentation, he offered me a job and I thought about it, for, you know, 0.2 seconds. That's your sliding doors moment, isn't it? What if it had bombed? Maybe you would have like given up and you'd be like... Yeah. <laughs> it would have been really awkward <laughs> in the short term, never mind any other repercussions. Um, so yeah, so off the back of that, um, uh, I then for the next two years basically followed around Steve Winter on assignment for National Geographic yeah. Magazine. It was it was insane. So the, the day after I graduated from university, uh, I did zoology here yeah. in Bristol, literally the day after I left graduation early to get, uh, you know, go pack my stuff and then get on a plane and start working for Steve. And at this stage, did you know, um, or, I mean, you'd already, you know, played with with film, of course, the advent of shooting high definition around that time with DSLRs was was significant. And did you know that that's what you wanted to do as a photographer? You know, you started out very much doing stills. 
when did you have this idea that, you know, I actually want to move into the moving image yeah. and be a cameraman? Well, so I started to shoot video a little bit before that. Um, and I guess from the very beginning, I grew up watching David Attenborough documentaries. Yeah. And, you know, like many people, I think, that are in this industry, um, that's, you know, why lots of people start, because of those Attenborough BBC documentaries. And rather embarrassingly, and I'd probably never say this to National Geographic, so hopefully they don't listen to this. Um, I'm hoping they will. <laughs> I, you know, I, when I was growing up, I never thought I want to work for National Geographic. Right. I, I, it was always the David Attenborough documentaries. Yeah. And I think that's just because in the UK, that's, you know, our version of National Geographic. Of course. And if I was in the US, then it would have been National Geographic. Um, so, so yeah, uh, I, obviously I'd, recognize the um uh you know significance of it is you know on the same level i mean in stills there's no there's no organization better than national geographic for stills um so it was an amazing opportunity and um yeah getting to work for steve was was awesome but as you say the the video side of things i kind of started making my little short films before and that was really key i think when i was working for steve because i was his photo stills assistant you know he's known for camera traps sure and that requires a lot of technical stuff and so my job first and foremost was to make it try and make his camera traps work yeah which is a pain in the ass were you also hired to to document what he was doing as a photographer or were you more kind of you know Bertie can you help me ish I mean as an assistant you yeah for sure that is part of the job but I mean what I realised on our first shoot in South Africa was that it was like hang on a second we're having all of these amazing experiences we're filming photographing leopards um, we're having all these amazing experiences. And I mean, from this particular shoot for this le- worldwide leopard story, it's probably going to be three pictures. Mm. We were there for like two and a half months. Yeah. So we're having all these amazing wildlife experiences that I know we'll, we'll probably never see the light of day. And suddenly if I shoot video of Steve and of the leopards, well, that's like a whole nother yeah. avenue. And, you know, selfishly, that's that means that I'm creating stuff and not stepping on Steve's sure. toes. You, know, you hear lots of stories about assistants uh you know shooting alongside Nigeria photographers and you know there is some luck involved to an extent and you might just get a shot that they don't manage for whatever reason and then that create that's just not a situation that is a good one to be in that's just not Ego how it works involved and yeah exactly. well it's just not how yeah it's yeah. not a good one to be involved in so if I was shooting video then suddenly we were like doing things that I was all my stuff was complimenting Steve and so I mean uh you know I've been lucky enough to have you know, I've already talked about a couple of the mentors I've had. Yes. People like Pete Cairns, Mark yeah. Hamblin, Andy Rouse, yeah. Alex Mustard. Um, then I guess my next phase of mentors was was having Steve Winter. Yeah. He, you know, is one of the few I think National Geographic photographers that really cares, um, you know, deeply about the success of his assistants. Yes. I think he re- he really That's does. Great. He's very selfless, um, and uh, and so yeah, he it was such a great platform working for him because yeah. I could then go into loads of the offices at National Geographic and say, I'm Steve Winter's assistant. And mm. suddenly that is your, you yeah. know. Yeah. And it must be really nice for him as well to see how you've flourished, you know, as a result of that experience and doing your own thing with them as well. And are you still in touch with him? And do you get yeah, to yeah. see Yeah, you get to yeah see every him. now and again we see each other. Yeah. I wish it was, I wish it was more. I hope that we'll, work on another project together Brilliant. one day that would be fun anyway in answer to your question <laughs> which I started answering about 15 minutes ago um, how did the first National Geographic uh, the series that I worked on for National Geographic Wildlife come about so while I was working for Steve um, I was getting to know so my job developed from 
not just assisting Steve, I was now shooting video for a television program about Steve and the animals we were filming. Yeah. So I got to know the people at National Geographic Television and they said, well, you're not totally useless on camera, so think about <laughs> pitching some stuff, you know, some solo projects yeah. to work, you know, that you can do in your side time. Um, and because I'd you know, been on Vancouver Island, like you mentioned earlier, yeah. um, spent two seasons uh, helping a wildlife tour guide out there on his bear watching boat, I knew that patch. Yeah. And um, so I applied for a National Geographic Young Explorers grant. They're now called Early Career Grants. Mm-hmm. And that's such an amazing way to get in with National Geographic. Yeah. Um, because uh, you don't need to know anyone within National Geographic. It helps in the grant process if you do, but you don't need to. You just need to have an idea that you're really passionate about. Mm. In my case, it was about going to find coastal wolves and getting more people excited about coastal wolves because I had this horrible situation where I got to know this wolf pack really well and tragically the alpha female and one of her pups was shot mm. and it was just yeah, it was, yeah, it was crap um, so I thought well if we can get more people excited about coastal wolves you know I think people care about what they know about lots of people haven't heard of coastal wolves if we get more people excited yeah. about coastal wolves maybe stupid stuff like that won't yeah. happen again um and so I pitched it to National Geographic as a television program and they said no. Right. I was like, all right, cool. Right, now what? Unfortunately, um, the head of Nagio Studios at the time, Brooke Runette, was like, okay, well, we don't want to do a TV show. What if we do an online series? Um, and, and they hadn't done one before. They'd never done an online, a, a digital first, so online first wildlife series. So they'd done series where it was, you know, a TV show and then they'd, cut stuff up to put online right but never a digital first just dedicated that was what it was going to be first you know whether it was made into a tv show after was a separate thing um and it was uh, for various reasons it took a long time for the uh the backstage stuff to come together but meanwhile i had this grant and i was going i had these set dates so i just went out there and had three months on vancouver island just figuring it out and going right so we've got to film coastal wolves but we want to tell a much bigger story about all the amazing characters there the black bears the bald eagles the sea otters all that stuff um and yeah it was a bit stressy because i didn't actually find coastal wolves <laughs> for a long time but you said that's what you were going to get i mean did you spend like a do you have you know with, with pitching something like that do you have to spend a lot of time you know doing spreadsheets and convincing people that you know this is the story and this is how it's going to work and this is a script or how does how does that kind of work well with that particular series it was kind of like the wild west this like digital first <laughs> platform so i mean i I got good at talking about how I was going to find Coastal Wolves, but it didn't really dawn on me until I got there. And, you know, I'd been so lucky with the Coastal Wolf family that I'd kind of hung out with before. I accepted that was the norm. And it turns out like I've never had an experience like that since. Um, uh, So, so yeah, um, you know, when you get there and suddenly you can't film these wolves and everyone, you know, people like Joel Sartori, Paul Mm. Nickland, the top Nagia photographers, they famously all say that, you know, you're only as good as your last story. Right. And this was my first. Yeah. So like, <laughs> you, you, better, you, better you cock up walls. your first story, you're in trouble. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess, uh, yeah, I, I, in the end, I made it work and yeah. had this amazing I mean, intimate encounter. I kind of spoiler alert, you know, spoiler alert for those who haven't seen it, but it is, you know, it's a, one, a wonderful moment. And um, and actually I was interested in asking you about that, that format because it seemed to me like, um, you know, 
Planet Earth BBC were doing this sort of 10 or so years ago, uh, the diaries and the behind the scenes and looking at the effort that goes into getting these shots. And you very much geared your series around that. Right. And you as the personality and you as the storyteller and the cameraman. And, and that's something that I think worked, you know, really, really well. It's great to see. It's exciting. And it feels like there's that that connection. And um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that idea and making that work, because they're also quite short episodes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's evolved a lot since that first yeah. season. Um, uh, and now we're making much longer episodes for it. They're now between nine and 12 minutes sure. long rather than you know, three to five minutes. Sure. Um, and I guess how... Um, uh, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> no worries. It was uh, just, did the, oh, uh, so how did the style come about? Yeah. Sorry, I got memory loss like a goldfish. Um, uh, so how it came about was, you know, I grew up watching these Attenborough documentaries and really annoyingly, whenever you talk to lots, you know, when you talk to a significant number of people that aren't interested in wildlife, the bit that they talk about, I or know. the bit that you overhear, <laughs> is the bit at the end where they show you how they did it, which is really annoying because <laughs> that's the bit that least amount of time is spent doing. Yeah. And really, it should be about the animals. But I, I think the reason why that part is so popular is because it's relatable. Of course. You know, if you see a polar bear standing on an iceberg, most of us will never see a polar bear standing on an iceberg. But suddenly when you see someone, you know, really scared because they're so close to this massive predator or really excited or struggling to get a shot or getting a shot, you know, just seeing some kind of human emotion with that, I think it suddenly brings it to life. Totally. And that's what I really loved about in quite a few of your episodes. Um, You know, it's, it's... it's beautifully shot it's fun as well it's really creative but you've also got lots of stuff about missed opportunities you know like with the bald eagles lots of shots of them out of the frame out of focus and you do that quite a bit and I think that's quite a nice story to tell that it's hard work and you have to spend a lot of time doing it yes it is a glamorous life and it's lovely being out there but there's pressure on, especially if you've got a budget and, and time to work to. And, and we both know how bad the weather can be on, on Vancouver Island. But yeah. showing that is, I, that's something that they, they, they talk about a lot in, you know, in the, in the, in the diary section. But I, don't, I think they miss actually you know, showing the kind of shots that don't work, which I think was really nice right. to see. Well, I think everyone loves seeing people mess up. Yeah, exactly. I think there's something about that that's quite satisfying (laughs) Um, and I guess the other thing is that when you see when you're watching these making ofs I think a lot of the time well not necessarily with the making ofs but when you see like wildlife adventure programs people I think often certainly you know there's with male hosts um, you know it's all about like man versus Mm -hmm. nature and it's like come on yeah. it's so boring yeah. it's, and it's like oh I'm going to climb up that mountain because I want to conquer it it's like sure. no you want to climb up that mountain because the view at the top is going to be awesome <laughs> and you want to like hug a mossy log sure. you know and I think um, yeah just not taking yourself too seriously and embracing the times when stuff's not going to plan because yeah. that's that's real I think that's hopefully how you're going to connect with people yeah and it's part of the journey and and I like to feel people can see through when you're you know BSing them yeah, you know when totally. when 
you're taking yourself really seriously and you know <laughs> it, yeah I think it's nice to kind of yeah. shatter that yeah. illusion completely I wanted to get, you said something which I was really interested in and also a really good bit of information you know I mentioned to you earlier through the analytics I have now on this podcast I know a lot of young people listen to it and people searching for new sources of information and you know you mentioned about these grants that National Geographic give out and you don't have to be you know connected or have a foot in the door and there's cronyism it's just yeah they will accept something if it's a good idea and and again I remember you know talking to you many years ago about you know this kind of confidence and and you know you being quite young and that being an unusual thing when a lot of people are figuring out what they're doing at your age you're just getting on and doing it and I'm one of the things that really stuck with me that you said many years ago was that you just asked for stuff and you just made it sound really really simple and I think that's in, in many ways, and I'm, you know, it resonated with me, is that a lot of people have fears about, you know, putting themselves out there or showing their work. But it seems like that, and of course, I'm sure, you know, you have your insecurities and you have met rejection, but just doing that and going for stuff and asking for it is really quite a simple bit of advice for, for young people that are you know, listening to this and want to kind of perhaps follow your path and go on that journey? Well, I think that confidence is a big thing. And I think there's a real balance because, you know, networking is such an important part of yes. of the wildlife filmmaking industry in that people want to work with people that they like. Because mm-hmm. if you're going to go and, you know, be on a shoot with someone, you live on top of each other for six weeks, mm. you better get on. Yeah. You know, you can be the best camera person in the world, but if you're an asshole, mm. no one's going to want to hire yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's, yeah, just, I guess, having the confidence to go up to people and be nice to them. But then at the same time, you know, it's 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 got to be genuine, right? It can't, you know, people see through fakery. Um, and I guess on the other side of that is if you are going to be confident about something, you better make sure you can do what you say you can do. Because sure. it's all well and good having confidence, but there's nothing more of a turnoff than overconfidence that isn't backed up you know the amount of times i've been on shoots and um you know someone said that they can do something and it's like okay well let's see how this goes yes. and it turns out you know they can't they were over promising wow it's just super embarrassing yeah and not only is it super embarrassing it's not productive so i guess yes have loads of confidence, but just make sure you can back, back it up because otherwise it's going to be really embarrassing. Yeah, and, you know it's not going to it's not going to turn out well. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I guess to your point of of just asking for stuff, I think in, in the context of um, uh, I don't know how to say this, how to phrase it, but um, just like try and if you if you get a really cool opportunity, take it, but then try and not make it more, but but take advantage of it. You know, as an example with Steve, like I was hired as his assistant, but it's like, okay, well, what can I do to take this on to another level? Okay, let's shoot loads of video. And then suddenly I can go from just being his assistant. Not that's not an amazing role. Of course. But now I'm, you know, shooting alongside him in my own right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, with, with 2020 vision, okay. They say that they're going to let you, you know, tag along on a couple of the pro photographer shoots. You get two weeks in the year hanging mm. out with them. We'll spend the other 50 weeks by yourself, you know, sneaking up on peregrine falcons yes. in the streets of London. Yeah. And maybe it will lead to something. Yeah. Maybe it won't. But um, I guess it's just using your initiative and and 
just doing it because you know I, I you know met lots of uh, people my age and younger at film festivals and stuff and they say because I've been lucky enough to have a platform with National Geographic they say okay oh let's let's do something you know or how do I you know go be a wildlife cameraman or whatever or cameraman um you know we'll just like to start with go do it you know whether that's if you live in the middle of a city there's wildlife here or whether that's you know you're living in Botswana in Africa just Absolutely. go out and do it yeah and it's great and fail because yeah. fail's awesome of course fail is awesome yeah and, and embrace that and I think seizing the moment is a really good message to come from that because we are so lucky now you know I know um, I've spoken to a lot of photographers who started on film and you know it's just unbelievable the opportunities we have and you know one, one of my previous guests Chris Ryan you know we talked about how digital photography really democratized photography. So you can go and get an entry-level DSLR that shoots high-def video and you can make a really good quality film, like you say, in your own backyard or do something and get, you know, it's about the storytelling. You do have to get good shots, of course, but I mean, that's what you started on. I mean, one of your first films was just But never through. mind that, everyone's got a f- camera in the pocket. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, the videos that go, I mean, I, I don't think we should rate videos on whether they go viral or not, but. How many viral videos are there of really cool wildlife moments <laughs> that are shot on people's phones? Yeah. And that's because it's not about, ultimately, it's not about, you know, filming it beautifully. It's about amazing behavior and amazing stories. Yes, if you can film amazing behavior and amazing stories well, then that's, you know, that's the, the gold star level, of course, of which course. is obviously what we're trying to do with your know, big wildlife series. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's, Spending the time and I guess, yeah, seeing interesting things. Or and trying do, to and see doing it, yeah. just getting out there and doing it. And it takes time. It really does take time. Um, and, you know, I'm 42 this year and I'm, I'm kind of feeling like, oh, there's the race against time. You know, I've got to get more content, more content. And you never, one of the great things I think, and I think that's why a lot of the photographers that are really, you know, there and doing great stuff with National Geographic are, are that little bit older because they've got this you know, vast experience that they can draw on and, you know, to create these stories and seize the moment when they're in the field and, and doing that. I mean, you're a little bit of exception to that at being 25. But, um, yeah, that experience is, 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 is so important. I mean, the thing that all those guys have in common, you know, that incredible generation of, you know, legendary Nat Geo photographers, I think they're all, you know, they're all very different and skilled in different areas. But the thing they all have in common is that they're all absolute work machines. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I often think about that. You know, I occasionally listen to Desert Island Discs. I think I always find it fascinating. People that have achieved stuff at a high level, you know, whether it's science, arts or whatever. And the common thing through all of their stories is just how dedicated they are and how hard they work. And, you know, I run photography workshops and often people that come on them are, you know, they don't come on with a great deal of confidence, which of course is why they're there, so I can help them learn. But one of the things they say is, oh, you know, I just don't have a creative eye. And I often think, well, that's just an excuse because you can go out and you can just practice and you can work and it take and, you know, the, the numbers of photography can be a bit boring, you know, learning the difference, you know, that changing your aperture makes or your shutter speed. Right. It's sometimes, you know, it takes a while, a long time to really master that and get right. your head around that. But that stuff is all totally not a relevance, the wrong word. But that stuff all needs to be second nature by the, of course. By the time you're actually doing yeah. it. You know, if you go, you know, go meet up with a bunch of wildlife camera people and they're going to be talking about 
animal experiences that they had. They're not going to be talking about what shutter speed they of used. Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to come on and talk about the second series. But first, and you touched on it earlier, you know, about this difference between or your expectations about being a cameraman for the BBC versus Nat Geo. And now, you know, Netflix have kind of up the ante and thrown in, you know, they've got Attenborough. That's big. And I read this article that he said, you know, it's, of course, I'm going to still do BBC stuff, but the audience is, is just so big. And I wonder what your th- thoughts were on that. And, you know, the, the, with, with um, you know, TV on demand and, and reaching people online, it's just, it's just, you know, even bigger than the BBC, dare we say it, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, it seems like every man and his dog are making their version of Planet Earth at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... I think it's, I, I mean, it's great because it just shows that there's appetite for, for natural history. I just hope that, you know, people are making these series for the right reasons and that the quality stays high because, yeah. you know, the reason that basically any wildlife film you've ever seen has probably been made in Bristol is because mm. this is where the expertise is yeah. and it's come from people that have originally worked at the BBC Natural History Unit. Yeah. Um, and there's only so many people to make these documentaries. So I just hope that, that there's enough people to, you know, enough really talented and experienced yeah. producers, which there are lots of in Bristol. Hope there's enough to keep up with all of these series that are being made. Yeah, sure. Does um, it mean you? Does it mean you've got the option for for more work when more people are doing it? Yeah. Oh well, yeah. I mean, it's brilliant at the moment. There's there's, um, you know, I've, speaking to some of the, you know, I'm a total whippersnapper right at the start. Yeah. Um, but you speak to some camera people that have been doing it 20, 30 years and they're like, yeah, this is, this is a crazy time. This is, you know, everyone's, you know, I can't even remember maybe like five or six years ago they said that, oh, you know, it was on the way down and now it's just, yeah, skyrocketing. Amazing. Golden age for sure. Um, Yeah, it's just a shame that it's not a golden age for the natural world. No, it isn't. It's quite the opposite. And I just hope, again, coming back to that, I hope people are making these films for the right reasons. You know, it's, You've got a, we've got an amazing responsibility, you know, given that we have such privileged privileged access to the natural world to make sure that actually the stuff that we make isn't just entertainment. Yeah, I think primarily it has to be entertaining because that's how you reach maximum number of people. But yeah, it's got to have that. It's got to have the message. We're going to come onto that, and okay. uh, not to not to put a block on it, but I think it'd be an interesting thing to finish on. I just wanted to, well, and you said earlier, you know, you're only as good as your last film. So you got the great well, first you, film. Yeah, your first film, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. You're only as good as your first film. Yeah. Um, I'm tired. I've got a, I've got a one-year-old. And <laughs> we did say that on my notes. Um, and then you did it. You did, you know, you did, you did a great job. And then was it easier then pitching the second idea um, with a slightly different format um, filming in... in uh, South Georgia. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was kind of a funny story as to how that the second season came for wildlife. Uh, in that, the first season I think did did well off the top of my head, something like forty million views. Yeah, which was which was amazing. Like mm. to reach that many people, it was yeah, really exciting. Um, and yeah, it was well received outside of that geo and within that geo, which is important yeah um and yeah it took ages actually I, you know you'd think that um you know commissioning is a really long process yeah um and 
uh, it's it's stuff seems to take a really long time, and then once it's actually happening, it, it's very quick. Yeah. So you know you'll wait a year for an answer, and then suddenly it's like make a decision, make a decision. And you're like ah, oh, panic. Yeah. Um, and yet, and you've got to do it in three weeks. Exactly. No, no, no three hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's crazy. Um, so. Uh, I had a couple of different ideas for what I wanted to do for season two of Wildlife, but the one that really stuck out was South Georgia because um, from a totally selfish perspective, it was, a, you know, it's the holy grail of wildlife filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, not wildlife filmmaking, just holy grail of wildlife. You know, it's this tiny little sub-Antarctic island that is such an adventure to get to. And it's these giant, you know, 3,000 metre snow-capped mountains that mm. erupt out of the ocean and it's covered in penguins and seals and all the animals don't have fear of people. It's, you know, yeah. it's the dream, right? So there was that reason for going there. But also the main reason I wanted to go there was because it had such an amazing story in that you'd think that because it's so wild, so remote and has such a crazy density of wildlife there, that it was totally untouched, you know, one of those last pristine areas. Yeah. That's totally not true. We totally destroyed the place. Yeah. Um, and it's made this amazing comeback thanks to uh, some you know, brilliant conservation efforts. Um, that said, it now faces a whole new set of challenges. And, and so it's just such a interesting story, I think, and a powerful one that I hope that, you know, based on those conservation successes, you know, we can show, well, okay, this is what happens when environmental conditions are right you care enough there's good government you know resources are put in the right places mm-hmm. um why can't we do that in other places yes um yeah so you're using it as almost like a model for say look this is this is what you can have um with the right level of protection yeah. let's do that here um and it's brilliant you know again it's a really it's a it's nice that it's it's i love all the graphics in it it's really you know beautifully creatively told but with that state, same point of view, you, know, you being the protagonist in, in these. and, and well, you know, on, you... on that note, actually, I should say that <laughs> one of the great things about wildlife filming is that unlike stills, which is often a very solo endeavour, with wildlife filming, you're in such big teams. Yeah. Okay, you might be in very small teams in the field, but there's so many awesome people that you get to work with yeah and um you know as a as a host as a presenter you often get a lot of the credit which is totally unfair sure. because i'm surrounded by people that basically just you know uh um cover up my mistakes basically <laughs> the wonders of editing um and and so yeah that, that to me is one of the also the cool parts is that working in these really interesting teams i mean on wildlife season two about south georgia the team was actually crazy because in the field, there was me from England. There was Erin Rainey, who's our camera assistant, amazing um, girl that she does some amazing stuff in Alaska, lives in Washington State. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had Spencer Millsap, who's this guy from Texas that I originally met like at the start of Nat Geo, Great. Uh, when I first started working for Nat Geo. Um, and then there was a you know, the editing team was in New York. The uh, the like boss team, the Nat Geo team, is obviously in DC where Nat Geo is based. And then we had this multinational team like the editor was from Spain the series producers from Belgium um, the musicians that composed the music were from another part of Spain yeah it was this crazy international team um, that all yeah all got to work together and yeah that's brilliant and did you know looking at the credits of that of course and you're right it's it's it, it, they, they're a really uh, it's a group effort and you as 
and I'm sure you know you're at a stage now but at the beginning you know there's this level of control you know around your work and your footage and how you want to tell the story and there's ego involved as well I mean you mentioned to me you know you've got to finish an edit and I'm interested oh so you're editing as well or you know what kind of input can you get you know when you're in these offices and you're working with editors do they even like you being around you know do they want your input it's just like no this is our job you're out there doing the filming you know, bugger yeah. off, mate. <laughs> yeah, no, it's especially when, you know, with when I've done, you know, when been lucky enough to work for BBC and often, well, every time when I've been on a shoot for them, you know, the big David Attenborough series, you basically are a gun for hire. You turn up, everything's been organised, all the permits have been done, your gear, everything. You turn up, you film for them, you hand over the hard drives at yeah. the end of the shoot, and you go home. And that is sometimes really nice and sometimes like, oh, but yeah, yeah what's going to happen to that? Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas with this Nat Geo stuff, it's the total opposite end in that I've researched the idea, you know, got the permits, organised the logistics, got out there in the field, assembled this team, and suddenly there's, there's all this pressure it's, on you. It's, it's dirty it's, Gregory Productions for National well, Geographic. But it's it's your baby, um, uh, and and you you're so attached to it. Um, and so yeah, when it gets you know, into the edit, and people are saying, "I hate that scene," and I like, it's like it's like <laughs> you're vulnerable. vulnerable. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and so I've been really lucky in the team I've got to work with at a production company called The Front, who are in New York. Yeah. Um, we have a really nice relationship in that they really care what I think. And the nice thing is that they're not, well, it's, it's different, but they're not wildlife people. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes they'll come up with ideas that are like biologically just inaccurate. And I'll have to be like, no, right. <laughs> that's not going to happen. Yeah. And they, they totally respect that. And then at the same time, because they're not wildlife people, they come up with storytelling ideas that wildlife people would never have thought sure. of. Um, so it's a really nice balance between the two because we value each other's opinions yeah. and I think that it is all about collaboration and so I never want to be involved in a series where I have editorial control where I'm either have I have total dictatorship or someone else has total dictatorship over me because that's not how you make good yeah. stuff and you need the conflict don't you you do need those battles oh totally in, in yeah no the big arguments make the best results and and often when someone says i hate that about the film like i'm really against that and you totally disagree and then a month later when you've come to this horrible compromise a month later you're like actually yeah, i'm glad you said that you were right that yeah. that is yeah i was married to that idea because that shot took me two weeks to get it wasn't the best story for it wasn't the best shot for the story but I was emotionally attached to it because it took me two weeks to get. Yeah, and you've you've got to be ruthless in the edit, absolutely. Um, Well, so where can people... I mean, I'm going to put these in the notes, but where can people... Where's the best place for people to see these series? Yeah, so um, uh, season two, which was uh, about the island of South Georgia, it's called... The season was called Resurrection Island. Yeah. Um, So a couple places you can watch that. uh, NatGeo.com forward slash wildlife. Okay. On the National Geographic... Uh, website which is probably the easiest quickest way mm-hmm. of remembering it um but they're also on national graphic facebook and national graphic youtube um and there's all kinds of clips on snapchat i mean the really nice thing about national graphic is that they have you know they're the they have the largest uh let me get this right they have the largest uh following on social media of every 
of any non-celebrity brand. You know, bigger than Coca-Cola, bigger than the wow. NFL. It's bigger than Premier League. It's huge. It's um, and so using that platform, we can really scattergun stuff across different platforms and tailor it towards different platforms. It's just extraordinary, um, isn't it? And have this amazing reach. Yeah. So yeah, you know, I, I never thought that when I started making wildlife films that I was going to be doing a quiz on National Geographic Snapchat. <laughs> and like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, reaching a bunch of, you know, 13-year-olds that you'd otherwise have no way yeah, of hitting. Yeah, but it's cheesy, they're the future. You can inspire these kids at, the, at a young age and, you know, you get them hooked and it's... it's, it's yeah, it's totally. Be and some sure. of them you don't hook. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> of course. Who's so um, that freak, yeah. So we're going to slowly come to an end here and, you know, we touched a bit on the, you know, the responsibility that wildlife photographers and cameramen, you know, storytellers have, everybody involved. Um, it was interesting, actually, when I was speaking to, to Jasper earlier in one of the earlier podcasts, you know, he was a judge on the Wildlife Photographer of the Year and, and they had this conversation about, you know, what does the Wildlife Photographer of the Year want to be? And it's, in a way, it has this huge responsibility of you know, millions of people are going to see these images. So what's the message we want to get across? And I guess that's very much the same about what you're doing and you know, all other people that are making these nature doc documentaries. And I was just, I was doing a bit of research today and I read just today um, in The Guardian, there was this new report on the state of, for example, you know, biomass, um, of wild mammals has fallen by 82%. Natural ecosystems have lost half their area and one million species at risk of extinction. So my question to you is, <laughs> what are you going to do to fix this? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not a laugh. It's, that's a nervous laugh. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think the... Well, that's like a big question. So <laughs> let's try and break it down. I guess the first thing is, as you said earlier, there's this amazing, and I think the word amazing is right, amazing responsibility mm. that we have, you know, have access to a you know, huge audience with platforms like National Geographic. Yes. You'd better make sure you're telling the right message. And I mean, if you wanted to max out your viewership on social media, for example, the best way of doing that to literally just max out your following would be to... Uh, take pictures and videos of owls and otters right. and funny animals like squirrels, three animals that just people go nuts for on yeah. Instagram. <laughs> and you just scattergun with that, right? But you might be getting a cheap laugh out of people, but really you got to ask yourself, what's the point? It's like, oh, great, I got 7,000 likes. <laughs> it's like, well, for sure we want to reach lots of people. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you've got to do stuff like that to a certain extent, uh, you know, going for cute stories and stuff so you reach bigger audiences that you'd otherwise hit but yeah there's no this is massive responsibility to make sure that you're telling people the truth yes because you know if you show uh i don't know you know uh, a bunch of penguins that are traveling each year for you know they're tied to their nesting island like the macaroni penguin yeah. on south georgia if you show these little penguins having a lovely time you know getting chased by seals and feeding their chicks. But you don't mention the fact that actually because of stuff we humans are doing, changing the climate means that these, you know, penguins are having to forage further from their homes. Yes. And, and ultimately that means less food for the chicks. So they're, you know, going extinct. I mean, that's a, that's an example of wildlife conservation, which I think is 
is sounds to someone that necessarily doesn't care about wildlife. It sounds like something that we're just doing because, you know, it's a nice thing to do, right? Oh, we're losing penguins. Well, they're pretty cool. We should probably look after them. There's that side of things. But from a totally human, selfish perspective, you know, we rely on nature and wildlife for so many, well, everything we do. Yeah. But, you know, a couple of things, you know, fresh, fresh water, you know, clean air, um, productive soils, yeah. crazy things that we take for granted. So yeah. there's this responsibility to do that. And I think trying to make it exciting and accessible. And I think also one thing is providing a sense of hope because it is very depressing. Yes. We are in a lot of trouble. Mm. Um, that said, there are solutions to these problems. You know, we have a lot of the solutions we have already you know it's not just this thing oh we'll figure it out in 20 years time no we've got loads of solutions you know if we use our land more efficiently uh eat less meat um you know reforest you know massive areas set up marine protected areas so that certain places are going to thrive and then that's going to overflow and ultimately give more fish for us people you know there's so many things that we can do on a practical level yeah that i don't think often get the media attention yeah that they deserve so i mean to say that we're totally smashing that one out of the ballpark and we've got that figured out is not true because there's so many different factors that you have to weigh in when making programs to please various different people. But yeah, it's just trying to make sure that you 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 push as hard as you can to make sure that yeah. stuff is in there. And is that, you know, I mean, for example, you know, your, your next project, um, if you can talk about that, that would be great. But I mean, going into that mindset of... of you know, this is, I've got a responsibility, I need to tell the truth. And this balance of also having amazing footage, you know, new techniques, new cameras, find striking that balance, you know, how much are you kind of trying to push that story? So actually, hold on, this is more important. I care less about, you obviously still have to get good footage, but the story of this is really important because in 20 years, I might not be able to film this macaroni penguin again or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I guess the the... The latest series that I'm working on, I can't say too much about it, um, but it's about the the Canadian Arctic, right? Um, and you know, the Arctic is a place that's warming faster than almost anywhere on the planet, mm. and all of, the majority of the animals there revolve their lives revolve around sea ice, and that sea ice is disappearing, and those animals are disappearing. Fact. There's no arguments about that. Anyone mm -hmm. that tells you otherwise is is BSing you. That's yeah. not true. It's not a conspiracy. <laughs> it's not a conspiracy. It's happening. And you talk to people there that have you know worked there all their lives, you know, guiding or, or fishermen or whatever, and they're like, yeah, this this stuff is disappearing in front of our eyes. It's mm. not an abstract concept that's over a hundred years. It's literally in front of their eyes, year on year, disappearing. And um, I guess you've you've got to tell that story. But then also, again, it comes back to that connection. You know. Everyone on the planet should care that we're losing sea ice. Not because polar bears are going extinct, because let's be honest, whilst it's a very cool thing to look after polar bears, um, most people, you know, it's not a thing that, that they have time to even care about. Um, but the reason we should all be worried about sea ice is because, well, it's white and it's one giant mirror. And, you know, 90% of the solar radiation that comes from the sun bounces off sea ice and goes straight back out. Whereas, um, you know, if that ice disappears, which it is, 
Uh, suddenly you've got open water where open water is much darker. It, it only reflects about 10% of that solar radiation. So it's mm. just making, you know, heating up the planet. Um, so it, it's trying to use charismatic animals like polar bears, like Arctic foxes, like all those kinds of animals to get people hooked and then drip feed them with, you know, the important stuff about why it's actually the sea ice that's the character, not not the, the cute fluffy polar bear. I can't wait to see the results of this next series and, and your mission. And do you, do you kind of view yourself as also as almost like a journalist? The reason I follow Paul Nicklin as, you know, five million others do, and he often refers to himself as a wildlife photojournalist. And I think that definitely seems to be the way certainly nature photographers are going. It's just about being storytellers and having this responsibility. People enjoy telling stories and people enjoy mm. listening to stories. And yeah. that's, that's how you hook people there's only so much you can show really beautiful imagery if the story's crap then people aren't going to get hooked great i've got a couple more questions before we round up okay i was interested in you know if someone who was pretty ambitious as a 14 year old um what are your ambitions now as a 25 year old that's worked regularly with the bbc and nat geo um i guess making sure that the projects i'm working on are as making as much of an impact as as there could be because mm-hmm. um, it's definitely much not much easier but it's it's easy to make get com- it's not easy to get commissions what am I talking about <laughs> I have no idea I've only got like two um, I think it's it's more straightforward to go for topics that you know are crowd pleasers right sure um, getting you know, a really hard hitting conservation film on a channel is hard. Mm. Um, but you don't really want to do that unless it's entertaining because then you're just preaching to the choir. It's yeah. just, you know. Um, so I guess it's, yeah, build, building a, an audience uh, that, that, you know, trusts you to make, uh, you know, trusts trust you to, to tell them about interesting things. Um, yeah, uh, working with interesting people, having interesting wildlife experiences i mean that's ultimately you know whilst of course i really want to make a difference and you know um uh, get people to care about the natural world and hope that the films that i make directly affect you know uh, whether that's policy change or you know specific conservation projects on the ground yeah um yeah obviously there's also that you know childlike thing of you know i want to hang out with just you know cool animals yeah. um and, that doesn't and, go away, I don't think. Does no, it? but it's also our responsibility that if you're going to, I guess, take advantage of that, you better make sure that those animals are still around. Yeah. Um, and what about stills? Have you have you taken any pictures recently? <laughs> uh, not really. I'm not really out of choice. Uh, it's just kind of the way that, you know. Yeah, it's hard to do both, isn't gone. it? You can't do both. Yeah. Anyone that says you can is mm. is is bad at one of them or both yeah (laughs) um yeah it's just a totally different mindset Mm -hmm. you know capturing something in a single frame is really really hard yeah that said you know if the light's bad or or you know the behavior that you're going for isn't happening as a stills photographer your job's done whereas when you're shooting video well there's you know if you get your key piece of behavior the, the work then starts because you're then building out the sequence and trying to tell the, the whole story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, also, you know, you're so dedicated and, you know, your focus on these projects takes up so much time. What, um, 
you know, what would what do you think you would have been if you weren't that sliding doors moment? You know, when you're giving that speech and uh, trying to woo Steve Winter, and it bombs, and you, you have a confidence crisis. You throw your cameras in the bin. What would you have done? Uh, I, I, I've never thought. It sounds really cliche and cheesy. <laughs> I guess I like, I've never thought about. No, nothing else has ever occurred to me to to do, um, and I think really lucky in that I want to get to do something that I love but yeah. also that I've never n- not known what I wanted to do and I find I found that really difficult especially at university you know being with lots of my friends that you know lots of them didn't know what they wanted to do and I just couldn't associate that like associate with that like I, I couldn't get my head around how you, how you there wasn't something that you were just totally obsessed by right. <laughs> um, and and yeah no, so so lucky to 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 have that yeah um so yeah i don't know if that was no it does it totally does and 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 on that you know because there are you know many people that don't know what they're doing and you know people that are listening to this podcast um have you got any advice you know for young people who want to you know move into this Uh, world and you know try and make it as a nat geo cameraman well, I think the first thing to say is ask someone that's done it longer. <laughs> <laughs> Don't listen to Bertie. Yeah, uh, well, I found uh, three things that, that work really well. Um, one is uh, take every opportunity you get, just do it. You know, if someone offers you your first assisting job on, I don't know, the migration of wax wings, mm-hmm. uh, and it's your friend's birthday party, uh, yeah, the same day, Sorry, friend, yeah. got to go. Um, because there's a thousand people queuing up behind you that want to do the same mm. thing. Be the one that's different. Um, and, you know, spend every moment of spare time you have, or not even your spare time, spend every moment you, you can getting outside, learning to get close to, to, to animals and, and, you know, meeting people and things. Uh, I think the second one is is just try and, try and be a nice person because people want to work with people that they're friends with. Um, and you'll form amazing friendships on these shoots because in what other you know walk of life do you having often never met someone spend you know six weeks all day every day with that one person like it's pretty cool the you know the bonds that you form with that um, and I've started a list of three and I've forgotten the third thing I was going <laughs> to say <laughs> so, uh, what was I going to say uh, don't, no, no. yeah take every opportunity and yeah, that'll do. That'll do. <laughs> the third one, if uh, you remember, we'll put in the notes. It's okay. obviously really important, but Bertie, Sounds th- good. thanks so much. We've got to go and grab a pizza and uh, talk more. And I really appreciate your time here. I'm really excited about your next series. When 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 will that come out? Soon. Soon. <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, <laughs> no strict deadline. Stay tuned. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to be that really annoying person and say, uh, yeah, I'll... I'll Best way to, to find out is on yeah. my Instagram. So, yeah, if you follow my Instagram. Brilliant. Yeah. Can't have said it. That's tragic. Yeah. <laughs> no, That's tragic, isn't it? You and... Yeah, like, follow me on Instagram <laughs> and you'll, like, like it. Yeah. Bertie, thanks so much. Um, I look forward to seeing more of your work over the coming weeks, months and years. And it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Cool. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Bertie. You know, for someone who spends most of the year outside the UK. It was great to catch him in Bristol, the home of the BBC Natural History Unit and unsurprisingly where so many of my interviews take place. So now his third series of Wildlife, entitled The Big Freeze, is out 
so I encourage you to take a look. It's pretty incredible. Uh, they're also completely free on the Nat Geo channels or on YouTube, and you can find links to all of this um, and more of Bertie's work on my page on my site and, of course, on his website, which is BertieGregory.com. Bertie and all my guests give up their time generously for free for these podcasts so you can do us all a favor by sharing them on your own channels and by leaving a review on iTunes which helps get these amazing stories out there to educate and inform a wider audience about these incredibly dedicated people thanks again for listening I'll be back with my next guest towards the end of August until then have a great summer Mm -hmm.